Joshua chapter 1, I'll begin reading in verse 1, reading through verse 9, again reminding you that this is, these are not the words of men, but these are the words of the eternal God. They were penned with you in mind, so let's give attention to it even as it's read in your hearing this afternoon. Joshua 1, beginning with verse 1, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory." No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Amen. Children, I suspect there is a time, there have been times in your life in which you were afraid. Perhaps some circumstance that you did not know about, some matter that was causing you to tremble or causing you to doubt or, uh, or even be a little uh, scared. Maybe it was a storm of some nature. Maybe it was something that uh, just brought you to that place in which you really had no answers and you really didn't know what to do. But you did know one thing. You knew enough to go to somebody that would bring you comfort, that would bring you hope, that would uh, give you uh, the help you need to resolve the fear, the trembling, the concern, the issue that is uh, before you. In much the same way, this is what Joshua is facing. He is facing here in these opening words, as God gives these commands to him, he is facing very uncertain days. At least from his perspective, the task of leading the people of God, uh, the, uh, many uh, hundreds of thousands of them indeed, across the Jordan River into a land uh, that is full of enemies, that is uh, full of many different types of people, and all of the challenges that will come with that. It seemed, of course, it would seem to Joshua to be a rather daunting task, even a fearful one. And as we face those kinds of challenges, even in our own Christian experience, as we move through our days, as we seek to do battle against the world and the flesh and the devil, there will be times, undoubtedly, that we might be fearful. Now, frankly, if you think that's not the case, then either you're not telling me the truth. If you were to say that that's not the case, you're not telling me the truth, or you've really never faced any troubles in life. 
It is clear, it is quite evident, of course, as we move through our Christian days that life is full of hardships. And it can bring the strongest man, even the most faithful of saints, uh, to their knees in fear as to the task that is before them. The context here is obvious, isn't it? We have embedded here in these opening nine verses uh, the, the commands and the directives of Jehovah to Joshua, who is now the, the leader of Israel, to go take this land, go over this Jordan, do this work. But also, coupled with the directive of the command, is given to him the comfort or the, the hope that I will be with you. Repeatedly, through these first nine verses, we see that theme uh, stated over and over again. It's not just here, but even beyond this opening chapter, we will see Jehovah making that reference. And as it is for Joshua, it is for you, brothers and sisters, whatever it is you're facing, Whatever circumstance it may be, whether you're fighting your own sin and you're wrestling against the battle of your own sin, whether it is you're fighting against the world and whether you're fighting against the temptations that come to every one of us, the strongest to the weakest, whatever it may be, whatever difficulties and dark providences are in front of you, God has said and He has promised that He will be with you. The real question, of course, is whether we, you and I, are going to believe that or not. Joshua believed in the face of what seemed to be rather impossible, he trusted the God of heaven. He believed his promises and he understood that Jehovah is with me. And as such, then, therefore, there is no enemy so great that I cannot conquer it. Because Jehovah is with me, there is no problem that God will not take me through. Because Jehovah is with me, He will securely bring me to the heavenly rest in which He has promised to offer. The context is quite obvious, isn't it? It's really interesting, and the reading of the word previous to the sermon uh, even as I was reading, I noticed just this very subtle reference to the Jordan there in verse 2, in which God points out to go over this Jordan. Never noticed that before, frankly. It's the doctrine of illumination, by the way. Listen to the morning devotional, you'll understand. What, why is that there? What is going on? It's as though God was pointing with his finger to Joshua, this Jordan, right here. You're, this is where they are. They're right on the brink. They're on the, the shores of the Jordan River. The water rushing by, I'm going to sh- show you that in a second, rushing by, all of it going on, and there's myriads of people behind him, and God says, go over this Jordan. Cross it, I will be with you. Take the land. I've given it to you. I'm going to be with you. I won't abandon you. Joshua had two choices in the context, didn't he? He could have said, ah, right. Promises, promises. Or he can believe. He can believe. And as we know, of course, as we read through the book of Joshua, God, he believed what God had for him. And so I'm going to show you this afternoon that the great I Am assures you of his promise, his presence 
in the face of the world and teaches us the means of great courage as you face the world. I'm going to show you that the Spirit is teaching us many things here in these nine verses, but He's at least teaching us that the great I Am, the God of heaven, He who created all things, is with you. He assures you of His presence. This is not just unique to Joshua. This is unique to all of God's people. He assures you of His presence in the face of the world and teaches you the means of great courage as you face the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're going to see this in two points this afternoon. We're going to first see the assurances in the face of difficulty, and then the attitude behind the actions. The assurances in the face of difficulty, and the attitude behind the actions. First, the setting of the assurances in the face of difficulty. The setting is, well, quite obvious, and I made reference to this last week. The first nine verses is Jehovah. He's speaking. It's a sermon. Joshua's listening, presumably. He's sitting there, and he is hearing uh, what God himself, the one who made all things and knows all things, uh, end from the beginning, and he is listening to him. Jehovah is speaking very much to his servants. The same way he speaks every Lord's Day in the preaching of his word. I don't need to tell you that the whole concept of preaching in the church today has fallen on bad days, bad times. We don't believe that it's the living voice of Christ speaking. Therefore, we find no hope or assurances from the sermon. The only thing we hope for is that he'll be just get done so we can move on to something more useful. Well, God didn't see it that way here in these nine verses. He, as it were, preached a sermon, the most an infallible sermon, uh, into the ears of his servant that he might assure him and give comfort to him that this task that he's about to enter into, he would, be no, he would know and be encouraged that God is with him and will not leave him. And that is precisely what God says to you every Lord's Day. Not only through the proclamation of His Word and the living voice of Christ, but when the benediction is pronounced and you're sent out from this place, that you might go with His blessing and His presence, being reminded that He is for His people. He will go with you. He will never abandon you, no matter what the circumstance may be. Joshua needed this comfort. Why? Because Moses is dead. Not only Moses, the one who led the people of Israel for 40 years, the the servant of the Lord, uh, preeminent figure in the Bible outside of Christ, a vitally important figure, he was also Joshua's friend. They labored side by side together. They worked together. They battled. uh, Joshua was present at the Battle of the Amalekites early on in Exodus. Much of what Joshua did, he learned from Moses as the apprentice of this great servant of the Lord. And now his friend is dead. And he has been handed by God's own hand this responsibility to take these people. 600,000 men or more. That's how many came out of Egypt, by the way. We, 40 years later, there's presumably more people. 
and lust people. What a task. Into the unknown. Into a land he's only himself visited once. And so it's reasonable to conclude that he, as a man, (coughs) is somewhat fearful of what he's about to do. We can infer that, of course, because of the command itself. What does Jehovah tell him? Arise and go. (coughs) It's really the first of four commands in the passage. He tells him that as much. Verse 2, my servant is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan. (coughs) You and all this people into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Presented here in this very command is really an impossibility. You want me to do what? You want me to... The Jordan? Now, how exactly am I supposed to get over this thing? Now, remember, Joshua, of course, he witnessed the Red Sea crossing, so he's got some historical context. He has the reassurances of God's faithfulness to the people in the past. But again, once again, there it is, a river running by, and God says, I want you to cross it. It's a little like you and me standing on the banks of the Mississippi during the rainy season, and the water is rushing by rather rapidly, and you're told, just cross it. What's the problem? It presents a challenge for any reasonably thinking person. If you turn to chapter 3 and verse 15, you see this rather odd um, parenthetical statement. If you wonder just how difficult this task might be at this particular point of the calendar year, In verse 15 we read, And as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the fleet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. So in other words, we're not talking about the Jordan River just being up to our ankles. We're talking about its being quite full. Bringing to itself, bringing to Joshua a difficulty. And then... With that difficulty in front of them, the directive is given, arise and go. God gives Joshua a direct command. It's really two commands. <coughs> the first command being arise, the second one, go. Who's to go? Joshua and all this people. Who are those people? The second generation of the people of God. Remember, in the first generation, all those who left Egypt, led by Moses, they're dead. Why are they dead? Because they wouldn't believe. And their belief led to sinful behavior and sinful actions and rebellion against God. They weren't able to enter because of unbelief. And now God presents to Joshua a challenge. He presents to him this difficulty right in front of him. The question, of course, will Joshua believe the voice of God or not? And will he do what he is commanded to do? This people, the second generation of people, that is to say the sons and the daughters of the parents that left Egypt. 
In the midst of this directive, God gives certain assurances to Joshua. It is not as though God gives to His people today, you and me, directives. Of course He does. We have commands all over the Bible. You can't read the Bible and hardly and miss them most of the time. They're there. No one would argue or even question that reality. The question is just exactly how are we going to accomplish these things? What kind of assurances God give to us that we can actually do that which He has commanded us? And so as God gives to Joshua this difficulty, presents to him, as it were, the impossibility of it all, he meets Joshua in his place of need, that he might be assured of the ability by which he can accomplish the command that he was given. Yahweh gives not only to Joshua, but to all the people of God. He gives an assurance a repeated refrain that I will be with you. It's stated over and over again throughout the first nine verses. It's very impossible. It's, it's functionally impossible to miss it. There in the middle of verse 5, I will not leave you or forsake you. There at the end of it, the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And that's just two, just me glancing down at the passage. There are more. He gives assurances to Joshua. The very things that he promised to do, he will do. If you back up to Deuteronomy chapter 11, of course, this is during the days of Moses. Really, he's in the middle of what is functionally a sermon on the Ten Commandments. In Deuteronomy 11 and verses 22, 4 and 25, we read of another assurance that's then repeated in Joshua chapter 1 that he reminds Joshua so, so plainly about. Hey, this is difficult. I realize that. Cross the Jordan. Go into this strange country. Take all these people with you. I get it. It's hard. Fighting the world, the flesh, and the devil is not easy. In Deuteronomy 11, Moses even says, Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. Your territory shall be from the wilderness to the Lebanon, from the river, the river Euphrates, to the western sea. Sound familiar? It's almost exact language, a little bit of a difference, but it's functionally the same wording that God gives to Joshua there in verse 4 from the wilderness in this Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, and all the land of the Hittites to the great sea. He reminds Joshua. Joshua heard this from the words of Moses. He was present in the worship service, as it were, when Moses was preaching this sermon. And he's reminded, once again, of that which God has said he would do. We, too, need to be reminded, don't we? I can't tell you how many times I simply remind people of things that I've told them 29, 30, 40 times, sometimes in one week. Repetition is important. When I was on my previous call in Tennessee, I had an elder who got aggravated with me because I'd repeat myself. Now, I think repetition for the sake of repetition is somewhat pointless. Uh, But repeating for emphasis to drive home a point and to remind the hard-headed people of God of these important truths is is effective. God does it. 
He gives these assurances to Joshua. Hey, look, I've said this before. I'm saying it again. I am going to be with you. I am going to give you this land. You do not have to worry. You only need to trust me. Put a different way, that which God says he will do, he does do. What God promises, God does. Always. The problem for us, usually is that he doesn't do it when we think he should. Most of us, I think, here, I think I know most of you well enough to say that you believe the promises of God by and large. You may waver here and there from time to time, but the fact remains is that you believe God's word. The problem we usually have, you usually have, is that you're not happy with the way it's being worked out and how it comes to pass. We want what we want when we want it. That's not trust. That's presumption. Trust says, I know you're for me. I know you're going to take care of me. I know you're with me, and I trust the timing. For you are never late and you're never early, but you're always right on time. So God gives to his frightful, fearful leader. He gives to him certain assurances. The repetition of the promise and the presence, the reality that he would fight for him. It's easy to miss this as it pertains to the Christian experience. Too many times in churches, you hear how much you have to do. You hear that here. You have responsibility. You have things to do. You exercise the means that God has given. Certainly, God's going to fight for the people of Israel. But they've got to go across the Jordan But God assures Joshua that at the end of the day, at the end of it all, as they behave responsibly, he will fight for them. He will grant them the land. It was repeated over and over again in these first nine verses. Notice in verse 2, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. That I, not that I might give. Maybe if it all works out okay, it'll happen. I'm giving it to them. He goes even further uh, later on in in these uh, nine verses to say functionally the same thing. Be strong, courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. So this is a settled reality in the mind of God. There's no questions. He's not confused. There's no doubt in his mind. The doubt usually resides in ours, and what we need to learn and need to understand that it is Jehovah who fights for his people. At the end of the day, it depends upon him. If he is beaten, you're dead. But he can't be. He will always conquer. He will always reign and rule over the enemies of his people in ways that he orchestrates and the ways that he determines. The people of God... Really, as a picture, versus the flesh, the world, the flesh, and the devil. How is it that you can beat off the onslaught of the evil one? I know you're so strong. You've memorized so much of the Bible that you can't be defeated by temptation. 
or you went to seminary, and, and, or, or you've memorized the catechism. Or No, it's, it's none of those. Those are means to the end. But the real end in itself is that Jehovah fights for you. You pray that in the Lord's Prayer, don't you? Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil or the evil one. What are we saying in that prayer? We're, we're saying that we, God would not allow us to be tempted. But if so, that he would uphold and sustain us in the temptation. Peter was a pretty zealous man. One of the disciples of Christ, in case you're wondering what Peter I'm talking about, there's really only one, but okay. Pretty zealous man. He heard Jesus was going to give his life. Ah, it's never going to happen. No way. Jesus rebukes him. Get behind me, Satan. You remember what he, Jesus said to Peter? Hey, look, Peter, I know you, you think you're all that. I know that you, you, you know, you're a super mature Christian. Uh, I know that you got a seminary degree. I know that you're, you've walked with me for three years. I know all these things. But you know what, man? You're just a piece of cake to Satan. He's, in fact, he's asked for you. He's asked to run right over you, much like he asked to run over Job. And what did Jesus tell him? I've prayed for you. It is the Lord himself that goes before us in times of difficulty. It's the Lord himself that leads the charge. It's the Lord himself that brings us out of it. It's the Lord himself that protects us. It's the Lord himself that will bring these people over this Jordan into this promised land. And when we start thinking it's us... Usually we get reminded by the Lord that it's not you. It's him. And so what God is teaching Joshua here in, uh, in some sense is that he must live, he must go, and he must take this land in full dependence upon the God of heaven. Full dependence upon the final hope and assurance the full dependence upon his presence. He gives a reminder to Joshua of the promise. He tells him that he will fight for him. And then he tells him that I will be with you. He will be with the people. He won't leave them or forsake them. And it's not just for them. This is the church of the Old Testament. This is the church. This is you. He's not going to abandon you to the world. Whatever your circumstance may be, some of them I know, and I don't pretend to know them all, but I don't need to to know this. God is with you. He's not going to abandon you. He's not going to leave you. He's not going to get tired of you coming to him, crying out to him. He's not going to get weary. He's not going to tell you that he needs to go to bed. He's not going to tell you that he needs a vacation. This is the God of heaven. He neither sleeps nor slumbers. Unlike us, we need all those things because we're creatures of dust. He doesn't leave his people ever. Even for the 430 years in which the people of God languished in Egypt, God saw and God knew. Perhaps one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, I guess perhaps, I, it, it probably ranks up there in the top five. The very words of the prophet Isaiah during a period in time in which Israel probably felt pretty abandoned. 
In Isaiah 43, there we read, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Isn't that the people that are on the shores of the Jordan? The redeemed of the Lord? You belong to Him. But it doesn't stop there. Fear not, He says. Life's hard. The world, the flesh, and the devil can be very difficult at times. Fear not, for I've redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. Again, there it is, repeated. You are mine. You belong to me. But notice here, and and it's hard for me to read these words without thinking of the allusion to the Red Sea and the allusion to the Jordan River crossing. It has to be. What's the very next words that the Isaiah the prophet puts pen to paper? When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. It's almost as though Isaiah is reflecting back upon the mercy and faithfulness of God and thinking about the Jordan River crossing and God's people didn't drown. They didn't drown in the water. You won't drown either. God is with you. You might think, well, if God was with my friend who was a Christian, why did he die? God was with him. Are they not better? Off? Now? Freed from the tyranny of this life and the sickness and the, and the disease that caused this in the first place? God does not abandon his people ever. There is never a time It is, in fact, the last thing he said to his disciples from Matthew 28. What do you think they're thinking? Yeah, we've been walking with this guy for three and a half years. Now he's leaving. In John 14, their hearts were troubled. What does he say? Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. What is he doing? He's giving comfort to them. Why? Because they're going to be like Joshua. They're going to take the battle of the kingdom to the world, to the flesh, to the devil. And that's a fearful thing. But I'll be with you. I will be with you. The picture, of course, it's drawn here is one of sanctification. And how it applies to us, even in these nine verses, is one of spiritual battle. The world, the flesh, and the devil. All of them are your enemies. Sometimes your own worst enemy is the one looking in, the person looking back at you in the mirror. Apostle Paul, sensitive to this truth, tells us how to deal with that in Ephesians chapter 6. But as you labor on as pilgrims in this world, as you go to take your heavenly rest, take heart, God is with you. He will never leave you. He is conforming you to the image of His Son. Even Jesus Himself had to count on this. In His earthly ministry, as the founder of our salvation, One like Joshua was commissioned by his father, similar to Joshua, commissioned to go and secure a people and save them from sin. Now, I'm sorry, I don't know, but that sounds like a pretty daunting task in which the entire forces of evil, the entire kingdom of darkness was unleashed like never ever seen in history. Why? Because the Son of God was walking the earth. 
Even in his baptism, when Jesus, was, when Jesus heard the very words of his father, well done, uh, good, or, or, um, this is my beloved son in whom, whom I am well pleased. There at the Jordan River, really, as I said last week, great connection between the two events. The one who enjoyed the continued presence of his father, even as he went to the cross, one who was victorious. Into my hand, to your hands, I commit my spirit. And he did so with complete trust and confidence that the, his Father in heaven would not allow him to see corruption. And he didn't. He did not fail. He would not fail. He'll bring all of his redeemed people to himself. He will accomplish the purpose by which he was sent to go, just like Joshua will accomplish the purpose because the great I am is with him. But with that, with all of these assurances, with all of these promises, with all these hopes, there's an attitude behind all of it that God tells Joshua to employ. Notice it's not just a let go and let God thing. He gives Joshua commands. He gives him directives. He tells him the means by which he can lay hold of these eternal truths that God has given to him. The attitude is to be strong and courageous. It's the command that brackets verse 6 and verse 9. If you look at your Bible, you see that. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to them. Verse 9, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. It's like bookends in the narrative. The action that Joshua is to employ is really not a physical set of plans handed to him. It's not a set of military plans that are handed to him. You would think that as a commander of an army, he would be given battle plans, blueprints, as it were, uh, military plans, how he might cross the Jordan and, and launch out into these multi-pronged attack into the promised land to destroy Jericho and Ai and all the cities beyond. But that's not what God gives him. As the plan. What does he give them? He gives them a directive to be careful to do according to all the law of Moses. Here's your battle plan. Follow my law. Here's your battle plan. Obey my word. Here's your battle plan. Meditate and think upon all that the scriptures say. To meditate, he says, day and night upon the Scriptures. As you do battle against the world and the flesh and the devil, as you face uncertainties, dark providences, as you face these various sundry things in your lives, the means by which God uses to help remind you of His promises and His hope and His help to you is His Word. To read and meditate and then do. It's all there. Read it, Joshua, because you can't meditate it if you don't read it. Read it, then meditate on it, and then do all that you have read and meditated on. I think sometimes we get tripped up with this whole idea of meditating on Scripture. I think we're just good Americans, and we want microwave theology. Give it to me in two minutes or else. Meditate. On Scripture, it takes time. 
It's to ruminate over, to think deeply upon. Literally, it is to groan or to mutter. Sometimes when I'm working on sermons, studying the text and trying to understand the mind of God in it, if you were to walk by my study, unbeknownst to me, if I didn't hear you come in the building, you might hear me talking out loud. You might wonder if I'm talking to somebody. Well, no, myself. But what am I doing? I'm engaging in meditating. I'm engaging in this the muttering through it, to talk myself through it, to, to explore it, to look at it from various points of view. And this is what we must do if we're to find the hope and assurance that God has promised in His Word. We need to think about it. We need to think deeply about it. We can't just read it like some magic formula and say, okay, there, I read it. Everything's great. What happens when Joshua does this? What does God promise to him? His way will prosper. He'll have good success. He'll draw courage and comfort from it. A reminder of the promises that he's given. This prosperity that's promised here is not material. His success is that which orders God orders as successful, which is, by the way, contrary to what the world's going to call it, but the kind of success that God determines and God orders, the kind of success that Joshua wants and the kind of success that any servant of the Lord desires. One commentator puts it this way when he is commenting on this very issue. Really, he sees a great illusion here when he says that Joshua needed strength and courage to obey the law because of the strong temptation to turn from it. Wasn't this Satan's temptation of Christ? Post-baptism into the wilderness to fight the forces of evil like Joshua and the people of God? Joshua was to respond to those opponents with the word of God. Jesus responded to those opponents with the word of God. The illusion is striking. It's almost impossible to miss. Joshua led by the Spirit across the Jordan into a strange land to do battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. The greater Joshua, Jesus Christ, who was baptized in the Jordan River, is then led by the Spirit of God into a strange place in which he then faced the temptation of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And how did each, how are each to respond? The greater Joshua responds with the word. The first Joshua was told to respond with the word. And we too must remember that as we face those things in our lives. Because without the Word of God, you've got nothing to do battle against those hard things. It is, of course, the only offensive weapon in your hand. And if you don't know how to use it, you won't use it. Or you'll use it badly. No battle plans. No military plans. Joshua... Read my word, study it, know it, understand it, be careful to do it, and I will give you the greatest success you'll ever seen, you've ever seen. You will be successful against all of these matters. The context here in Joshua is very clear about what is to be the key to Joshua's success. 
In verses 7 and 8, he is to be careful to obey all the law. He is not to turn from from it to the right or to the left. He is to have it constantly on his lips, to meditate on it at all times. And he is carefully to do everything written in it. His focus is to be upon God's word and will. Then as he leads Israel and taking the land of Canaan, success will most certainly come to him. What kind of success do we want as a people? To make Providence Presbyterian Church a name for itself? Or do we want to make Christ the preeminent object of our ministry here? What kind of success and prosperity do you seek in your life? To be more godly, is that the first priority? Children, is that your first desire? To be like Christ? When someone asks you, what do you want to be when you grow up? A fireman, a policeman, those aren't bad answers. I want to be more like Jesus. How do we get there? By being careful to meditate upon his law and seek to do it. But through it all, when we remember, and we remember well, when God commands His people, He equips them. He didn't just give us commands and sit back and laugh at us as we try to figure it out. This is, I prayed, give to me what you command me. I want to do it, but you must help me. You must fight for me. You must go before me. You must be with me, or I can't, but I want to. When God commands, He equips. There are many issues in the Christian life that will require boldness and courage. And as the people of God, you must be unswerving in your allegiance to Him. But friends, friends you know may depart, family may revile. Opposition will come not only from others, but from yourself. That is why you need to be brave and courageous. Remember, your God is with you. He isn't fickle. He's not going to get tired of you. Oh, that's it. I'm done. You've asked for forgiveness 9,306 times. Let me check my Excel spreadsheet. I'm over it. If that's the God we're serving, then I want to, I'm, I'm changing religions today. That's not the God of the Bible. He's long-suffering. He's not fickle. He won't fail you. He keeps his promises. The problem is we don't keep our promises. He keeps his And because we know these things to be true, then we can turn with great confidence to His Word, to stay in His Word, to meditate upon His Word, to obey His Word. And as we do that as His people, as we recognize the great I Am is with us wherever we go, and equips and gives to us what we need to fight the world, the flesh, and the devil, we will have good success. We will prosper. We'll have the blessing of a holy God. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for your word and thank you for all that it promises and gives to us the great hope of your presence. We pray that we would just believe, we would simply believe you, that we would not only believe you, then we would then exercise the means by which you accomplish these things. And so be gracious to us in our time of struggle, our time of weakness, and the times in which we can cry out, I believe, help my unbelief. Be merciful to your church and your people, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.